Good afternoon and welcome to today's Employer Advisory Session, the Post-Election Healthcare and Benefits Landscape. My name is Annette Bechtold and I'm the Senior Vice President of Regulatory Affairs and Compliance at One Digital. As you know, this series of advisory sessions has been in response to a rapidly changing economic and healthcare landscape where businesses and HR leaders have been forced to take unprecedented actions to protect employees and their organizations. The luxury of deliberating on key decisions vanished overnight, but the impact of those decisions are going to be key going forward to our survival. So the healthcare reform landscape is totally evolving. Today, we're going to explore items with the greatest potential impact to healthcare policy, the cost of healthcare, and its corresponding effect on health insurance. In our time today, we're going to focus on the election, of course, the Affordable Care Act, as that case is up before the Supreme Court, and other significant considerations. As leaders of the One Digital Advocacy Team, our focus is to bring your voice to lawmakers and regulators and to work to educate and affect positive change. So please help me and welcome my esteemed colleagues. Hello, uh, my name is Pete Gronberg. I am Executive Vice President and Regional Managing Principal for the Northeast and Southeast region. And also specific to, to, to today's discussions, I uh, serve as the Chair of the Employee Benefits Executive Committee for the Council of Insurance Agents and Brokers based out of Washington, D.C. I'm Samantha Molliver. Um, and I am the Managing Director of Compliance Consulting here at One Digital. Um, and part of my duties here is I'm also a member of the National Association of Health Underwriters, or NAHU. Um, and uh, I'm happy to be talking today about the ACA. Yeah, hello, everyone. My name is Scott Wham. I am the Director of Compliance and Innovation for One Digital's Philadelphia office. I pr primarily work with uh, employers in the Mid-Atlantic and Northeast, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Delaware, New York, and all of those markets. Uh, but I also presently serve as the legislative, as the chair for the Legislative Council for the National Association of Health Underwriters. So I work very closely with Annette and Samantha in, in trying to advance uh, thoughtful health care policy down in Washington, D.C. Thank you all for being here. Today, we're going to focus on the big picture issues in our discussion. So please keep in mind the questions specific to state laws are probably best directed to your one digital consultant as regulations vary state by state and are changing rapidly. So with that, let's get started. So, um, of course, uh, this has to begin with where are we today on the election? So here's the current election landscape as of yesterday. So to say that this has been an interesting election is probably an understatement. Uh, more than a week after the presidential and congressional elections, there's still undecided states. We have runoff elections that are needed. There's a few states that don't have 100% of their votes reported. There are states announcing recounts now, and the list goes on. So um, other than, I think, George Washington being voluntold that he was going to be president, this is probably one of the most unique presidential elections to date. So just as a recap, it, it really takes, it takes 270 electoral votes to gain presidency. So the current count shows 290 for Joe Biden and 214 for President Trump, with three states that aren't yet called, Alaska, North Carolina, and Georgia. As long as the Electoral College certifies at least 270 votes for Joe Biden, he will become the 46th president of the United States and will be sworn into office on January 20th of 2021. 
Now, kind of turning to the, the House and to the Senate, because those races are happening as well, and there's been a lot at stake in both. So if we look at the House race, um, for the House of Representatives, the Democrats, if we just think about today, this is the 116th Congress, they currently t- hold 232 of the 435 seats, while the Republicans hold 198. So that difference is 34 seats. In the current election, and for this next House, this 117th, Congress. We know that Democrats today um, show 218 seats, or at least as of yesterday, they show 218 seats, while Republicans are at 201. Now, there's 16 seats that are up for grab right now that are undecided. And of those right now, 12 are Republican-leaning, and three are Democratic, and there's one runoff in Louisiana. If all end up as indicator indicated or as their leaning is today, there's going to be about a five to six seat advantage for the Democrats. So they'll have uh, five to six seats more um, than the Republicans will, which is a significant difference over the 34 seat majority that they have today. So while they'll still have the majority in the House, it'll be a much narrower majority than they've had in the past. And so um, this could have some, some significant impact as we move forward on some of the passage of legislation, especially as it relates to health care. Now, if we turn to the Senate, there's two seats that um, hold uh, the whole majority in the balance. And if I have one more person say, it's your fault because you're in Georgia to me, I, um, I truly is not my fault, but I do live here. That is true. So it's down to these two seats in Georgia, right? So in Georgia, no candidate can advance in, e- in either the primary or in the general election unless they earn 50% or more of the votes. Well, that didn't happen with either of the two Senate races. So the current race between um, uh, the Republican incumbent, David Perdue, he currently holds 49.71%. So it's right there, and he's the Republican incumbent. And John Ossoff, though, the Democratic candidate, is 47.96, so very close. Um, in the other race, um, this was a, a special election due to the vacancy left by Johnny Isaacson, longtime member of Senate who passed away midterm. And so this was crazy. Um, on the election ballot, there were actually 20 people to choose from. So, <laughs> so the chances that somebody's going to get 50% were pretty narrow at the onset. There were six Republicans, eight Democrats, four independents, and two that had no party affiliation. And so they were they ran and nobody got 50%. So now there'll be a runoff of the top two candidates. Um, and though both of those races don't happen until January 5th. So we're not going to see um, a final outcome in the Senate. So let's kind of talk about where things are. So right now the Democrats have 46 seats and there are two independent seats. And then the Republicans have 50. So there's 100 members in the Senate. Uh, a majority is 51. So um, of these two seats, if one goes to the Republican, uh, one is a Republican, then the Republicans will maintain that 51 51 which will be the majority. Now, if both of them, this is interesting. So if both of them go to um, are, are the Democratic candidates who win there, then there will be 48 in um, Democrats and then these two independents. Now, typically the two independent people have, have are most aligned with 
the Democratic um, policies. And so very often they vote that way. But it'll be really interesting. In that case, you sort of have, if everybody voted on party lines and you have these two independents who vote with Democrat, then you have 50-50, which is a tie. And then all tiebreakers in the Senate are decided by the vice president. So this will be an interesting race to watch as we come forward for sure. Now, you know, Scott, you and I were talking earlier and you mentioned there's a whole bunch of diversity though when it comes to healthcare policy. So while you're talking about we've got Republicans, we have Democrats, it's not like they all think the same thing, right? No, yeah. I, you know, I think that we had the experience over the past, gosh, I, I don't even want to say four years. It's been almost a decade, at least taking a look at what's transpired in the Republican Party, where you can say definitively that there's at least three different shades of Republican in Congress right now um, yeah. that 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 are really pretty far apart on some major issues. If you look from the far right to the more center of the party, the same phenomenon is what we're experiencing right now uh, as a nation when we look at the Democratic Party, where you're starting to see a, a fracturing of, of the party into three or four different segments as well. So while they all affiliate with, with, the, with the big D, Underneath that D are, are quite a few different genres of Democrat that uh, that will make it uh, uh, a little bit more challenging to accomplish policy objectives. Uh, there are wide arrays of disagreements amongst the amongst party members, um, just as there have been uh, with Republicans over the past ten years. And and you know to to an extent that's good. It might slow things down. It might it might enhance debate. Uh, it might bring up issues that that rarely get get play that that are important to discuss. But I think that that there is a, a comfort that there is not one controlling faction in Congress who is going to be able to ram through policy. It's going to take a lot of negotiations. It's going to take a lot of discussion. Yeah, and that's such a great point. So is diversity is, is a good thing. I mean, obviously, nobody thinks identically to somebody else or always has the same stand. And so you do have a lot of this. It'll, it'll make it really interesting to see what passes, what will be the things that they'll decide to work on moving forward. So the fact hey, that they're Annette, not all aligned will be uh, tough. Pay, Pete? And one, one, one thing to add is just interesting, you know, the, 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 the crazy world of politics and, and, and already we're hearing about, oh boy, you know, will Trump run again in 2024 oh, yeah. and here he hasn't even left the White House yet. And they're already having all these discussions. Same thing, you know, just with the, the swing in the House with, with the Republicans picking up more seats, you know, boy, what, what's going to happen at the next midterms? And meanwhile, as we're going to talk about in the rest of the session, there's an awful lot that needs to be done before even starting to think about any of that. So. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we're really good at borrowing trouble, though, aren't we? That's, I think that's what everybody does, is they're always a step ahead. But then what? But then what? So, yeah, we do have a lot of things to figure out before we get to that point. So, thanks. So we're going to dig in today um, into a couple of really key areas, and I think that'll be really important as we look forward to, you know, what could transpire in healthcare and in this health insurance space. And so, I really want to focus um, here on the Affordable Care Act to start us off. So, it's got to be the big, one of the big biggest items. It came up in, in the debates. You know, it's been a hot topic for since the, <laughs> since the advent of ACA, right? And so um, now with the court case and uh, the hearings in the Supreme Court, uh, the oral arguments, I should, I should say, in the Supreme Court that took place on, on Tuesday, um, you know, there's a lot to be decided. So Sam, you and I, I know you and I both listened to uh, live to the oral arguments. And um, I wonder if you could just 
do a brief description maybe of kind of what is it that they're deciding and what does this timeline look like? Sure. So this isn't the first time that the Supreme Court has heard the argument on the constitutionality of the ACA. Um, actually, back in 2012, they heard a similar uh, type of argument. And in that case, they upheld the act, holding that the individual mandate was a tax and then valid under Congress's authority to tax and spend. What's different now is because of the Tax Cut and Jobs Act that came out at the end of 2017, in which Congress zeroed out that individual mandate penalty. They didn't repeal it. Um, they just changed the penalty amount to zero dollars. So following that, in February 2018, 20 Republican state attorney generals and Republican governors brought suit in Texas, claiming that due to that zeroing out, now this individual mandate is unconstitutional. Um, and it made its way through courts. And then on Tuesday, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments. Um, it was roughly about two hours. They heard oral arguments from both the plaintiffs and then also the, de uh, the defendant, uh, I guess the defendants, the Democratic um, states, and then also the U.S. House of Representatives. And essentially what they're deciding on is kind of three legal arguments. The first one being is kind of a more procedural type of argument, whether or not the plaintiffs actually have standing to bring the suit. And really that what, what that means is, does the Supreme Court or does the federal court in general have any jurisdiction or authority to make a decision based on this claim? Do the plaintiffs actually have an injury that stems from the individual mandate, which they say is unconstitutional? Um, the plaintiffs claim they do have standing. Um, often the term that was being thrown around is standing through inseparability, but essentially what they were claiming, one of their seven um, arguments for standing was that due to the employer requir reporting requirement, the states as employers have incurred kind of a pocketbook cost. So they have a financial injury because they have to produce these forms for their employees that have coverage, whether they have uh, minimal essential coverage or not. And so due to that requirement, they have a financial injury. The second one that they claimed that they had standing was due to the Medicaid expansion. So their claim was that due to the individual mandate, individuals enrolled in Medicaid because they had to, if there wasn't the individual mandate, they wouldn't have done so, therefore that's where the financial injury is. If the plaintiffs can establish standing, then the argument goes to the merits as to whether or not this individual mandate with a zero penalty is constitutional. And if they find that it's unconstitutional, whether that can be separate or severable, or does the whole ACA um, fall, it cannot be inseparable. Or inseparable. So when I think about this standing to sue and this harm, right, um, you, you know, they did bring out the two very specific components of this, of the employer mandate and the reporting function. And of course, leading um, that these actions also led to a greater enrollment in Medicaid, which costs the state money. So, but it also led to the question about, um, which I thought was really interesting in the whole line, line of questioning to, to both sides about whether the government uh, requiring somebody to do something actually compels people to take action, penalty or no penalty, right? So the issue is, you know, with the penalty and there's this emphasis behind, um, hey, there is some sort of um, consequence to my action um, that's one thing, but if the consequence is gone, 
does that really compel anybody to do anything? And I think that's one of the things. So um, do you want to elaborate on that a little bit? Because they did talk about that, right? So, yeah, so <clears throat> there was kind of the two arguments. So the plaintiffs, you know, Texas and that, were claiming that the individual mandate as drafted with the word shall is a command. Um, basically commanding individuals to comply with the law, whereas the defendants are saying, no, it's a choice of law or a choice. They have a choice. There's no compel. Um, and then this time they were using, you know, a lot of language that I don't use in my everyday vocabulary, precatory, and what was the other one? It started with an S. Uh, supplication. I was like, what? That's what I was, you know. <laughs> but those really just mean like kind of the wish or like to ask that you do this as opposed to the command of shale. Um, so they really hung on that. Um, and I think in the 2012 case, they actually said no, due to that tax, it was a choice. So individuals could forego having to go get minimal essential coverage and pay the penalty. Um, so now the plaintiffs are arguing since they don't have that zero, you know, it's no penalty, whatever, it's a command. And therefore, if they don't have minimal essential coverage, they're essentially breaking the law. Right. Sam, Sam, this is this is kind of like it reminds me a little bit of a of a law school hypothetical uh, in this case. But but the precision of language really matters when you talk about the Affordable Care Act. And for instance, in the law, I, I believe I'm correct in saying it's not actually called the individual mandate, right? It's the individual shared responsibility provision of the law. So that's, that's really important. It just like when we talk about the employer mandate, we talk, that's the colloquial informal phrase that we use to describe uh, the employer shared responsibility provisions. But the difference between the wording of uh, mandate versus employer shared responsibility is pretty substantial. Uh, Employers are not compelled to offer insurance if they're subject to the employer shared responsibility provisions. So it's not technically a mandate. They have a choice as to whether they would whether they want to offer benefits or potentially risk an excise tax penalty, but it is their choice to risk the excise tax penalty. Just as with this, with the individual shared responsibility provisions uh, that we call the individual mandate, is it actually a mandate, right? Correct. And and that and I think that that's the, the the crux of the argument that you're alluding to from yesterday yeah. is 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 this actually a mandate? Does the shall make it a mandate or is it a choice? Well, yep. yeah, and without that force of the penalty, then what is it? You know, yeah. that was the big... a strong recommendation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's interesting, though, because they kept coming back to saying, you know, if Congress truly wanted it to be repealed, they would have, you know, struck that language, but rather they just changed the penalty to zero. They left it in there. So the argument that could be made is they could go back at another time and adjust the number. I think it was Justice Sotomayor who said that maybe it was the 2017 or the 2018, 2019 Congress that decided not to use its action to change the number. But who's to say that 2020, 2021, 2022, they go back and actually adjust that number. It's kind of a phase in or a phase out approach, which are found in other tax laws. So there's there's a whole, uh, what I will say in just uh, listening to the to the whole thing yesterday was that I thought the justices, all of them, did an amazing job of really playing devil's advocate to both sides, right? That it wasn't totally swayed in any one direction of making you answer what I already think, right? Uh, I thought they did a really, I don't know, what do you, what do you think, Sam? But I thought they did a really good job of challenging each each one of the, of the sides and very well. 
Yeah, I thought they were, you know, very poignant questions, very um, on the issue, really trying to get to the heart of the matter. You know, I think a lot of it was standing on, do they have standing? Right, um, yeah. You know, where do they actually truly have an injury that stems from this provision that they say is unconstitutional? Yeah. And then kind of reiterating, I think it was through Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Kavanaugh, that they find that severability to be a strong precedent. So maybe they kind of showed their hand a little bit that if even if they do find standing, that they are more likely to find it severable. And Sam, there's also, there's also an interesting uh, you know, consideration, which is the, the, the Affordable Care Act is an enormous law. Uh, it could be the case that severability means all the market reforms that we think of when we think about the Affordable Care Act is what's severable from the rest of the law, which is which has to do with like electronic medical records, has to do, with, <laughs> you know, Medicare payer restrictions. Um, you could uphold severability by striking down the marquee provisions of the Affordable Care Act while preserving the ones that gets very little press coverage. The other the other interesting thing is I remember hearkening back to constitutional law in law school. Sometimes when you're getting grilled, you're actually winning. <laughs> so the, it, sometimes the question, sometimes the questioning, you might leave an oral argument feeling like, man, I just got yeah. beat up. But really, the justices are, are trying to get to the heart of the matter and that they're asking you a ton of really hard questions, even and you might feel like you're not winning, carrying the day. And then when they release their opinion it went a different direction. So, you know, I, I, I was watching the news media coverage last night. And I felt like it might've been a little too aggressive in saying that it seems like the Affordable Care Act is going to be upheld. Uh, there, there, you know, there's the, the history is littered with examples where that's not the case. So, um, so it was interesting for sure, but I just, I just remember getting grilled even in mock trial competitions and being like, man, I just got beat up. And yeah. then I walked out and they find out, found out you actually won. <laughs> so, yeah. My favorite, I just have to say my favorite moment of the whole thing. And I, I said this to Sam afterwards. My favorite moment of the whole part was there, this whole discussion between the shall language, right? Shall and should. And so Justice Breyer came back and said, well, Let's do an, there were lots of analogies. Oh, they had analogies to mowing the lawn. They had um, analogies to wearing masks. It was good. I mean, it was really, it made it better. But this one was about raising your children. And he said, is there really a difference between shall and should? And of course, this was to um, the plaintiffs. So um, he said, absolutely. If I say shall, there's a consequence to that action. So I'm not sure it worked out how Justice Breyer wanted. <laughs> but and he's like, well, then you're better than in my house was kind of a thing, you know. So it was just kind of my favorite human moment of that whole thing yesterday. You know, if we think forward, though, about um, what are the potential, let's talk about the potential outcomes quickly and kind of talk about you know, what, you know, first of all, they, if they, if they have standing to sue, it moves on, just like you said, Sam, to the merit phase, and now we decide it. But if there's no standing to sue, what's that? What happens then? So if there's no standing to sue, essentially, they don't rule on the matter, and they just, you know, throw it out of court. I mean, they have, the court would say they don't have jurisdiction. Yeah. Um, they would need, basically, the a different plaintiff, the one who's actually injured from this provision to bring suit. The ones who are bringing suit right now, the argument would be that they don't actually have an injury from the individual mandate. That's what they would argue. Um, if they do find standing, then they would go on to determine whether or not 
this provision is constitutional, and if they find that it's not constitutional, whether the whole ACA falls or just that portion is unconstitutional. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, play forward, you know, the, the ACA, Scott, you know, like what protections do we lose if the ACA goes away? Yeah, no, I, I think that this is, this is really important. And, and, you know, I, the ACA is not new. It's been around for 10 years now. We're in, we're going into the 11th year of the ACA, but really the, the meat of the provisions that impact the everyday American, the everyday healthcare consumer came to, came into effect in 2014 with plans that began being sold in 2014. As I mentioned, the law is huge. It has a lot of provisions that don't touch and concern individuals every day. Uh, it, 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 it has a lot of provisions that we never talk about and never cover, but the marquee provisions um, are, are, are really boiled down to market reforms that, that expand, that seek to expand access to, to health coverage. Whether it's affordable, I, I think you ask 50 different people, you get 50 different answers as to, as to whether it's affordable. There's a lot of different ways to quantify the value of a health plan, but, but really the, the, the marquee provisions of the Affordable Care Act are as follows. One is the elimination of pre-existing condition exclusions. Um, prior to the ACA, a, a lot of states... Uh, had taken up their own state actions to require insurance carriers to issue health plans to individuals regardless of their health status. New Jersey, where I do a lot of business, is one of them. Uh, New Jersey's had what we call guaranteed issue regardless of your health status since the early 90s. I believe it was 1994 when the New Jersey law took effect. Um, But Pennsylvania, where I live, didn't have those protections. So uh, prior to the Affordable Care Act, you could be medically underwritten and denied coverage for a pre-existing condition. I I was denied a policy one time when I was switching jobs, I, I refused COBRA coverage and I tried to buy an individual policy because my doctor had miscoded what I had been treated for. So by the time I got that straightened out, my new coverage had taken effect, but I had effectively been denied coverage for a pre-existing condition. That can't happen anymore as a result of the Affordable Care Act. And that's um, really in the individual marketplace because HIPAA kind of took care of that in the group marketplace in 97, right? For, for sure, for sure. Yeah. And, and, and again, the precision of language matters and, and, and where this was a primary issue was in that mark individual marketplace yeah. that transitional market where people were moving between jobs and waiting for their next employer sponsored coverage to kick up or waiting to enroll in medicare or some other type of government program um, another big piece of the puzzle that has become a cost of doing business for a lot of the clients that we work with is the employer shared responsibility provisions i want to be precise that we often call pay or, <laughs> pay or play or or the employer mandate um which which now uh, you know i remember back in 2013 when i first started working for uh, my company that has since joined one digital a lot of a lot of businesses were very stressed out about the the employer shared responsibility provisions it was a, it was a law that really or it was a requirement that really wasn't written with a lot of nuance so there was no considerations as to whether a business was profitable or what their margins were. It's just you offer benefits or you pay penalties. There was a lot of conversation that people were going to lose hours, that people were going to be laid off, that that we were going to avoid this requirement altogether, avoid the conversation. And that really hasn't panned out. What has panned out, at least with the clients that I work with in the Northeast, I'm sure uh, a lot of my colleagues at One Digital have the same experience across the country, is that employers have more or less adapted to that requirement. So if that goes away, my primary concern, I see the upside for an employer of having the flexibility to offer benefits, but to what extent is that now an expectation of your employee population and taking it two steps further, to what extent does that add uh, risk for a labor organization? 
Um, if, it, you know, if the benefit has become an expectation of the workforce and it goes away, uh, to what extent does that give a lot of fodder to union organizers? I think I could probably become a pretty successful rabble rouser if I, uh, if, 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 if that became the, the, the end result. One thing that goes away, employer reporting. I don't know that anybody would lament the end of 1094 C's and 1095 C's. What I'm hopeful, though, is that over the ne- in the next Congress, we'll actually be able to lobby for ch- some changes to the ACA reporting requirements to make them easier and more and and more effective. Yeah, that's been a long that's yeah. been a long haul. We've been doing that for a number of years now, um, and had bills each and every Congress that have not been able we've been not been able to move. So, yeah. but 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 for protections and the, and this. This is really the heart of the matter with the ACA and what would be a scramble to fix if it was struck down in its entirety are subsidies that are available in the individual marketplace for health through healthcare.gov or a state-based exchange, uh, essential health benefits, which which are, were intended to close holes in health plans requiring uh, fully insured insurance products that cover uh, buckets of services that you would generally expect a health plan to cover. Sometimes some people argue more than what you would expect a health plan to cover, but, but that was the intent behind that. And the elimination of annual and lifetime limits for those essential health benefits, meaning that if, if I incur uh, a $5 million of cancer care within a year, the insurance carriers on the hook, once I meet my out-of-pocket maximum of $13,000 or give or take, whatever that is, uh, I meet my out-of-pocket maximum, the insurance carriers on the hook. Plans essentially right now are theoretically unlimited in their coverage as a result of the removal of annual and lifetime limits. <laughs> the thought process is that these are one, one-way trains. Right. And even even Republicans, you can see in the way that they talk about these provisions are starting to openly acknowledge that this is a very these are very hard genies to put back into the bottle. And if they get struck down in their entirety, is it likely that we go back to pre ACA times or is it more likely that there's a more aggressive conversation about a government payer program? So, yeah, yeah. good points. Good points. Pete, what about, you know, as employers are kind of thinking and watching all this, what what do you think is the biggest consequence here or concern? Well, really, depending on how the Supreme Court rules and that that's what we're all, you know, had a, a good, lively discussion here about it. And uh, if by sometime in May, June, when whenever a decision is rendered and if it's upheld and we continue to move on with that as the law of the land, you know, I think, I think employers are going to be, and and really uh, Congress for that matter and the White House are going to be working to improve some of these areas that have been probably neglected for too, too many years uh, that, that uh, really need to bring some clarity and some focus uh, to help really fortify and improve things um, within the law. Now, if it goes the other direction and, um, you know, all of a sudden ACA is no longer uh, a part of our, our world and uh, it gets pretty chaotic and all of the, the, the key provisions that Scott just mentioned, you know, certainly things that affect cost and coverage and how um, employers and employees are affected, those that are covered today under an employer plan and those that 
get coverage through exchanges that are are work for the employer, but they're not eligible for coverage, you know, where and how are they going to get covered? So, you know, there's definitely a ripple effect, you know, to both the covered population and the uncovered population, especially in the 20 million people who get their coverage through the individual exchanges and, you know, the growing gig economy. So you've got a lot of independent contractors that weren't there four years ago, 10 years ago, to the degree that they are now. And so the the implication is far reaching to the individuals, but also I think to the employer. So, you know, we're certainly hoping that the former becomes the decision. So we have, uh, you know, a a law to improve upon as opposed to starting from scratch. Yeah. And Pete, I think, I think that one of the things that, um, that businesses would want to have on their radar is, is just that if the ACA goes away, you're likely to see a patchwork of state, actions um, that where where if you're an employer with operations in multiple states, (laughs) that may add a layer of complexity um, that we're not dealing with right now as a result of of, of a pretty robust federal fit framework for what expectations are for health plans. I'm not saying there aren't differences between states, but anybody who who cited in say Philadelphia and has operations in Massachusetts knows that there can be some pretty, some pretty drastic differences in in plans. So, um, uh, that that federal fr- framework uh, may add a layer of complexity if it goes away. Uh, yeah, I, I absolutely agree. There's already state actions that embellish uh, on the ACA today while it's in play. And, um, you know, Pete, to your point, right, if it were, this is what I like to tell people too, it is not like a light switch. Like you're not going to just say, oh, it's repealed. And then all of a sudden everything disappears from the marketplace and your plans like go poof. You know, you're in a contract to the there will be rules written about how this unwinds, should that be the case. But it, but there won't be the safeguards there, which is what everybody's concerned about. So, I mean, I want to give some people a peace of mind that, you know, right. should that happen, like, don't panic. <laughs> Things will, will uh, you know, Congress will have time, the agencies will have to write rules, et cetera. And then at the end of the day, Congress could, could between now and when the Supreme Court makes a decision in June, they could come back and say, hey, we're going to institute a penalty of a dollar on that individual mandate. And now the whole case goes away, right? The whole thing becomes moot, if you will. So um, there's a lot of things yet to happen. I want to kind I'll of you a dollar that they don't do that, but we'll, we'll see where that goes in that. <laughs> I know, right? Um, and in, uh, I want to transition kind of taking a look at President-elect Biden's transition plan. So as he starts to make his plans to move into the White House, he's he's, uh, published four particular areas that he wants to work in. First, he's going to focus on COVID-19. Uh, economic recovery will, is in there, racial equity, and climate change. And, I, and given this agenda, along with you know, other statements that he's made along the way, where, where do we, you think we're going to see some action on health care reform, health insurance front? And I'll kind of turn over, Pete, to you to start that conversation. Yeah, let me just list um, five particular topics, and then um, maybe Scott, you and I will break each one of these down very briefly. So, really, number one is around general policy about healthcare, and um, what what the, the Biden presidency um, now that they're through, uh, you know 
the campaigning part of it. Now, now they're looking to go into action. Um, lowering the age for eligibility for Medicare is another topic. Um, uh, Medicaid expansion would be a third topic. Um, the often discussed through the campaign of, of uh, public option is the fourth topic. And then certainly the fifth one, which we're still very much the uh, involved with the COVID-19 impact on healthcare. So if I go back to the first one and, and, and think about general policy on healthcare, and sort of this transition um, into uh, taking office. And, and uh, there's, there's, needless to say, a lot of pressure that's going to come from the left wanting to um, go with a more aggressive healthcare policy. But I think really the foundation of what they're going to be focusing on is on um, ACA as the, the foundation and build upon it and strengthen um, where there are gaps. And, and there's there's a bunch of areas, some of which we'll, we'll cover a little bit here. But but I think that's really going to be at the core of the health care policy for Biden. And 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 that that's really going to be the focus. So yeah, I'd I, say that's number number one. Uh, yeah, I, I agree 100 percent, Pete. I think that the I think that if we look back to the primary cycle <clears throat> Uh, in this past election, and we look at the Democratic candidates who ran, um, I would have to put Joe Biden and maybe Mayor Pete Buttigieg at the top of the list for moderate uh, policy positions. And if you remember, there were times where Joe Biden was the only one on stage who did not support Medicare for all or some type of single payer system. And I think that, you know, remember, Biden was vice president when the Affordable Care Act became law, that if, if you were to ask Joe Biden, what his position is, you can draw a line at least tangentially to provisions within the Affordable Care Act that he either envisions expanding or or tweaking in some way, shape or form. But when I think Joe Biden's own health policy, I don't think revolutionary set, if, right. if that makes sense, if that makes sense. Um, now, Kamala Harris uh, has signed on to significantly more, to support some significantly more progressive uh, 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 items when it comes to health policy, but those weren't Joe Biden's. So, so if I agree 100 percent that uh, uh, Joe Biden likely will start with the ACA, looking at provisions within the ACA and having discussions. Another general health policy that that we you know Joe Biden speaks pretty openly about uh, as a what will be a focus of his administration is cancer research. Um, he's heavily involved in cancer research. He's got things going on at University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. Um, we'll likely see a push for appropriations for even more federal funding for exploring certain types of cancer therapies uh, and, and which will likely be subcontracted to a lot of different stakeholders um, out in the market that we interact with on, on a somewhat regular basis. So, uh, yeah, I agree 100% <laughs> with where you are with that, Pete. So you, want, you want to cover the Medicare eligibility yeah so, the, yeah, so the Medicare buy-in is an interesting concept on paper where the, where the thought is by lowering the entrance to Medicare to from, say, 65 to 55, um, that the private market would potentially benefit from moving more mature Americans to Medicare earlier. The challenge, though, when, when we think about this as a policy, 
is whenever Medicare expands as a payer, there tends to be an offset cost increase or cost shift to the private market. So if if the age for Medicare buying or Medicare eligibility goes from 65 to 55, that's millions of more Americans entering Medicare. What that means for hospitals and providers is that they will likely see an increase in Medicare patients. When you look at what Medicare pays for healthcare costs relative to what the private market pays, it's usually a, a third, if not less than what the private market pays. And what you tend to see is as those Medicare populations grow, we've seen it over the years with the baby boomer generation entering retirement, there tends to be an offset cost increase into the private non-Medicare market. So while on paper, it may look like, yeah, this would save money, we're concerned about, is it going to cost shift to the private market. And then also there is the reality that providers are businesses too, and they operate on margins. So if they're, if they're going to lose uh, more private market, uh, uh, market share or payer access uh, by lowering the age, does that ultimately achieve the objective of, of them being able to run a business that has been built on the current model? And, right. and, you know, if we could all go back to the creation of our healthcare system, we would all do it differently. Uh, but there is the reality of where we are and where we are is that would be a significant, significant amount of capital removed from the healthcare system that, that could have a detrimental impact in a lot of different ways. Yeah, and definitely see that it's effect somewhere else. If you're going to pull yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was thinking. Big yeah. cost shifts, exactly. Uh, yeah, right, exactly. The-, the money has to come from someplace, right? So, yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Scott, do you want to touch on the Medicaid expansion? Briefly? Yeah, so the Me- the Medicaid expansion is one that we're good, we're going to have to pay attention to. Um, the Affordable Care Act expand it gave states the option of of buying into what's called the Medicaid expansion, um, where a state would incur 10% of the cost of Medicaid and the federal government would pick up 90% of the tab. And what's meant by Medicaid expansion is that you qualify for Medicaid based solely on a household income calculation. It used to be the case, say in Pennsylvania, where I live, that you used to have to check a few different boxes to qualify for Medicaid. Um, The easiest population to think about when you think about Medicaid in the pre-ACA world in Pennsylvania is uh, single parents, right? Single parents, working parents um, who have a specific hardship. Now, it's just a math equation. So in Pennsylvania and states that signed on to the Medicaid expansion, which is really the entire Northeast and Mid-Atlantic, the West Coast, um, some parts of the Midwest, uh, Medicaid is now an entitlement for anyone who earns below 140% of the federal poverty level. This is important with a lot of the business owners I work with. One, uh, uh, it helps with the employer shared responsibility provisions. If you have low wage hourly employees, it helps them get coverage that doesn't trigger penalty liability back to the employer. It also helps with participation in some of the state in some of the states where I do business, where the employer can't afford to, to subsidize a plan to a level that their lower wage employees can participate in. That tends to hurt their ability to access a plan. They pick up Medicaid waivers, which which doesn't impact their participation. They're able to maintain a plan. But also importantly in Pennsylvania, uh, where I live, 600,000 people gained insurance at the height of the opioid crisis in Pennsylvania. And Medicaid in, in my Commonwealth is the is the top payer of drug treatment uh, costs. So there's a lot of different variables, but there are many states that did not sign on to it. So uh, the easiest way to break it up, guys, I hate to say it, is red state, blue state. Um, Many red states didn't sign on to it. Most blue states did. Most purple states did. Um, So Joe Biden has mentioned, at least informally in in a debate, 
thinking about taking Medicaid and, and expanding it ostensibly in a compulsory fashion to states that did not sign on to the Medicaid expansion under the ACA. Right. Yeah, which would be interesting because that would bring up the whole last ACA court case of where it was found unconstitutional to demand states that expand that. So uh, that kind of brings us almost full circle on <laughs> the ACA piece of it. Um, but yeah, very interesting for sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. So just to, um, touch on the last two items quickly here. The um, Public option, which uh, was probably mentioned the most in any debate that that uh, I think even in the in the last presidential debate, um, Biden decided to coin the uh, Biden care to uh, shift from Obamacare. So in, in the context of doing that and mentioning that the public option was was a, a, a somewhat cornerstone of what he thought was going to provide relief, again, mostly down to the individuals and through the exchanges. But there's there's some interesting byproducts of, of that and, and some inconsistencies that was set on the campaign trail, whether employees of employers could qualify to get it, which which has not been the case heretofore with the uh, ACA as it stands. So, you know, I think the public option is is certainly going to be a, a hot topic. Um, I'm not sure the votes are there, you know, even amongst the moderate Democrats in the Senate to get that over the finish line. But um, that will nonetheless, you know, really monopolize a, a lot of uh, airtime uh, going into uh, the beginning of the presidency. And then the, the uh, last topic was was really on COVID-19's impact and needless to say, uh, impact on healthcare. Needless to say, it's going to be really changing quite a bit about um, how we consume care, um, how we access care. Um, You know, quite frankly, in the past six months or seven months, how people have not actually gotten care and gotten preventive screenings. And, you know, while while many of our employer clients have seen, you know, less dollars spent on claims um, during this stretch, and now they're starting to catch up again. But in there, you know, the the ripple effect is that a lot of people didn't get the appropriate preventive care that they needed. So there's a lot of things that that, uh, will be changing as we go there. So I think, you know, Biden will look to focus in on how do you um, work to strengthen some of the things around testing and vaccine, you know, uh, coverage. And, and so a number of things, you know, around behavioral health. And, and uh, so uh, I think we'll see quite a bit happen there. So I think that uh, covers yeah, it. And, and, and Pete, it's also important to note that the government doesn't dictate all of this, right? Th- that the right. innovation absent any type of government policy in the spaces that you just highlighted is going to increase regardless of whether there's an official governmental policy supporting the expansion of telemedicine. The, the COVID-19 experience has just accelerated that conversation and it's, it's, it's made it, it's shown if there's one silver lining, at least with what we do, it's shown what is possible and what is, what is possible to accomplish in an efficient ma- manner in normal times that now we might have a higher comfort level with. And you see a lot of investment in innovation in these spaces, regardless of whether the government's 100% behind it or has a stated policy policy objective. Yeah, I think that that's such a great point because, um, you know, this, it's really challenged the status quo in so many areas, you know, and, you know, um, without a catalyst, it's comfortable to keep doing what you always do. I want to kind of pivot a little bit and in thinking about Biden's platform too. Um, we know that there's been a lot of executive orders that the constitution allows every, um, 
president to do that. All presidents have exercised. Uh, Obama had lots of executive orders for different things. And basically, I've explained before that that is instruction to these regulatory bodies. Congress doesn't decide everything, right? So they make laws, but then the rules around those laws are are put into place by departments like the Department of Health and Human Services, Treasury, IRS, Department of Labor, et cetera. So in these executive orders, the president is asking these regulatory bodies to, within the confines of the law, do particular things. Now, we've seen a slurry of these come through um, from President Trump on prescription drugs, on transparency, pre-existing, et cetera. Um, how do we think these may or may not align with Joe Biden's platform? Uh, let's start with the pres- prescription drugs, um, if, if, you, if we can. So we've seen drug expansion for drug importation, um, lowering costs on insulin and epinephrine, um, expansion to the telehealth to rural communities, and pr- the production, U.S. production of these essential med- medicines and countermeasures so we don't have a situation like we've had with COVID where we had to kind of scramble and catch up. What are your thoughts about that? I, I, I think that it's incredible how much alignment you're going to see between Trump and Biden on some of these issues. Um, you know, it was, it was, I was always just as somebody who was observing the election very closely and the campaign cycle very closely. I was surprised that President Trump didn't speak about these more uh, in, in more depth on the campaign trail. Um, I would say that these have been some of the most progressive uh, and, and aggressive in some way measures that have, been, that have come out of an administration to try to get at prescription drug costs, to try yeah. to get at, at expanding innovation in telehealth. I think it would be very hard for a President Biden to argue against these measures. Um, and I would be surprised if if there isn't way more alignment between the two individ- between the two administrations on these issues than we might suspect. Uh, just looking at the tenor of this election cycle. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't disagree with that. that uh, that's been my thinking, too, as I'm reading more and more and learning more about um, President-elect Biden's policies and where his thought or his health policy um, leanings are that very there's very much similar, but these aren't the things that have been in mainstream. Right. Uh, you know, communication. So I think that's, that's, uh, I think that would be surprising to many. Um, what about, um, yeah, then I think back about some of the early ones, though, like association health plans, short term limited duration policies, and this expansion of health reimbursement arrangements to allow employers to pay, uh, pay or reimburse employees to go get their own coverage in the individual marketplace. What do you, what do we think about those? Do we think that there's alignment there. Those could be ones that we see like, no, this is really not something we're for. I, I, I think that, yeah, go ahead, Pete. I was just going to say, I think that it's going to be interesting to see as that was a reaction to needing to do something when we couldn't repeal, uh, you know, from a Republican Party standpoint, we, we weren't able to repeal. So let's try and create more options that are going to lower costs in ways like this is doing. And I think some, some of these have proven to be interesting and maybe effective for some employers that have gone down this path and and others haven't taken quite advantage of it. But, you know, you always run the risk, especially with the more short-term 
um, types of plans that that it's not fully transparent to the buyer and the end user that they thought they got something that they didn't get, and then all of a sudden you have all the you know problems that ensue from there. Yeah. So, go ahead. I was just going to say, I think that this is, I think that these are uh, provisions that will have a much higher rate of skepticism from a Biden administration, um, because they, you know, they were intended in some way, shape, or form to disrupt the stability of ACA markets. To Pete's point, you you can't sell mini med plans alongside major medical plans that that are not allowed to medically underwrite. You can't sell catastrophic coverage alongside a risk pool that has to have essential health benefits and no caps on annual lifetime limits and not not at least theoretically expect to experience some form of adverse selection, some form of, of healthy people going to the cheapest plan and the sickest people going to the more expensive, more robust coverage. So when these executive orders came out, a lot of them had conditions where states had the option to sign on to yeah. whether they wanted to go along with, say, association health plans or short-term limited duration plans. And a lot of the, the, the blue states that seem to be proponents of the Affordable Care Act said we're not going yeah. that direction. Yeah, yeah. for sure. I, I think the other thing, too, to, to that, you know, we continue to be asked – I, I continue to get requests constantly from people saying, why can't we uh, form an association health plan? So there's this perception out there of the buying community, too, that this could be preferable, um, that it might fix some things. And so, you know, some of these things are born out of re- those responses, too. So it'd be really interesting to see where this comes to. And, you know, on the executive orders as a whole, you know, can he just repeal them? Sure. He can, um, because they're they're the last. They're like if you're a new CEO coming in, the last CEO said this to to their staff that you're going to do something else now. You know, Samantha, you and I were talking, if rules are written, though, like if Treasury has written special rules, harder, right? Yeah, it'd be a little bit harder. I mean, they'd have to go in and then have those agencies, you know, either redraft or, you know peel those rules. Yeah. Um, a little bit harder uphill battle. Yeah, for sure. You know, in, in our roles as advocacy leaders, you know, we continue to take kind of this active role to make sure that we can affect positive change and that, um, you know, we educate on particular things that might have a detrimental effect to employers. So uh, if each of you could just take a minute or so and just let, you know, tell me what you think, um, where you want to focus, highlight and highlight the main initiatives that we'll have coming forward, you think. So Pete, you want to start us off? Yeah, I, I guess I would say, you know, dealing with, um, we spend so much time, certainly on it to take today's conversation and just, just there's so much discussion around policy, healthcare policy. And really for years, what is of greatest concern to employers and employees and individual consumers is the cost of insurance, the cost of care. And we really need to get serious about trying to drive at work. That's the front and center issue from my, my perspective and working on, you know, how do we impact 
these rising costs in a way that, um, you know, is going to start to move the needle in the right direction. And, and I, I think that's part of our roles being very engaged and involved in Washington, as well as in, you know, the state houses that we're, we're uh, connected with in our home states, that we really need to advocate to um, make sure that this becomes an important, because otherwise we'll, we'll just spend another four years talking about policy and redistributing dollars around and not really getting at the root cause. So that that's kind of my, number one for me. Yeah. So it's, it's the, it's the beginning of the domino chain, right? Mm -hmm. The the actual cost of what it costs to be treated. Yeah, for sure. Thanks. Sam, what about you? You know, one of the areas I kind of focus on for advocating is the employer exclusion. So that just means you as an employer, when you provide coverage, medical coverage, the cost of coverage to your employees is excluded from gross income. So employees aren't actually taxed on that. It's a preferential tax treatment. The same goes if the employee is paying through a cafeteria plan, that pre-tax dollars, it's pre-tax, so it's not included in their gross income. They're not taxed on it. Um, Congress has at times... Uh, suggested either eliminating that whole exclusion or possibly putting a cap on it. Um, And we advocate to maintain that because if they did eliminate it, that would be, I think, a massive tax hike for middle-class Americans, thinking that, you know, you get this coverage through your employer, it's a benefit, it's part of your compensation, but you're not taxed on it, to go in turn and have to be taxed on it. I mean, from my personal perspective, I would see a significant, you know, taxation jump. Yeah, I, I think that I think that right now I agree with Pete and Samantha 100. I, percent I think right now I, I split the policy initiatives into two buckets. They're the emergencies, the exigencies that we have to deal with right now, and one that I care a lot about is transparency and 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 making sure that we can complete the loop of what was started out by moving the high deductible health plans and trying to trying to empower individuals to be healthcare consumers. Well, in order to be a healthcare consumer, you have to know the the cost of a given service. Uh, it's it's not really a realistic expectation to expect somebody to go cross-examine a physician to ascertain whether that individual is any good and then evaluate, try to find the price in the carrier. We need to make that really easy and actionable. And that's something that we're having a lot of policy discussions about. Again, Trump issued a rule that is really progressive on that front in requiring health plans and hospitals over the next few years to start publishing negotiated rates in a usable format. I think it'd be really hard for Joe Biden to argue against that. And I think that, I think that more transparency is better for our clients and the employees and families that we work with every day. But beyond that, my highest aspiration long-term, looking five, 10 years down the road, is that we finally start talking about variables that lead to poor health in the first place when we talk about healthcare reform. It almost entirely focuses on doctors, hospitals, insurance companies, prescription drug companies and the cost of care with almost no discussion about why we utilize so much care in the first place. Things like environmental standards, clean water, clean soil, uh, food insecurity, making sure that that we have high literacy rates, making sure that uh, we make easy choices, healthy choices, easy choices, getting behind programs that promote local uh, green spaces where people can safely recreate. 
all of these social determinants of health and environmental determinants of health are, it, are the strongest predictors to future health outcomes. And when you look at the United States, we score the lowest on that scale. And we see it manifest in what we pay for care and what we pay for insurance. And until we get ahead of, a, of, of our battle against chronic disease uh, that are largely driven yeah. by environmental and, and social standards, I don't think we'll ever solve this problem. So yeah. hopefully shifting that conversation, that direction is, is something that I care very deeply about as well. Yeah, I would agree, you know, looking more at the bigger picture. I mean, it seems right now it's always, who's the payer? You know, are we going to have a single payer? Is it the government that's going to pay or is it going to be the insurance you know, carriers that pay? But really, should we get more to the heart of the matter? Why does healthcare cost so much money and how do we, you know, lower that cost? Yeah, and, and yeah, that is the key, I think. Um, on some of the short-term things that we can do, I think, uh, you know, everybody's on board with trying to make sure that the patient's not responsible for surprise billing, you know, for balances that they didn't know they were going to have because they were treated by somebody they didn't intend to be. Um, so some of those things, I have so think some expansion on, you know, what you can, uh, you know, things that prohibit your use of your HSAs. Those are some short-term things I think we can focus on too as we tackle this bigger question about, you know, what's really driving the cost in the first place. So that's awesome. Thanks. Hey, during the course of uh, while we've been talking, we've had quite a few questions submitted to the chat. So I want to make sure that we have we take some time to answer a few before we end today. So um, there's been some trends and a few things. Um, so the first one is, that comes up is what happens between now and January? Um, are we going to see another stimulus bill? What do we think? What's going to happen? Uh, I knew I that obviously in this lame duck session, which is what this is coming forward. So uh, it'll be interesting to see. They're talking about it, but uh, personally, I'm not sure if they can get there. Uh, does anybody <laughs> can agree I mean, you, on what it should be? Do you think yeah. with the rising cases, you know, that 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 the pressure and, and the more things get either clamped so. down or closed from state to state, does it just become overwhelming that that? Pelosi and McConnell have to come together on something. I, I don't know. It, well, I think they have to come together and decide what is the most important right. thing. So when we talk about like the expanse of uh, HEROES Act, I mean, again, here's another huge omnibus type of bill. Do we do something like that or do you skinny that down to say, how do we help the people that are hurting right now? And let's just worry about that. I think if they could do that in a much better way, I think that something like that would pass. Yeah, I mean, it just, it really, if there's one thing that keeps me up at night, um, when I think about the situation that we're in with the pandemic, it's, I always remember that we didn't really shut down till the end of winter last year. It was March when we really started moving the remote working when impacted. So we had sunny weather to look forward to. Um, we're about to enter an entire winter uh, where, where we're going to be dealing with the pandemic. And when I think about some of my clients in certain sectors that, that, that uh, will have challenges remaining open on site and will be receiving scrutiny from state governors. Uh, it, it, think about restaurants, uh, at hotel hospitality, um, where, where, you know, the, they are receiving a heightened level of scrutiny. If you're going to tell them they can't operate, you got to pay them. Right. And, and, and I hope that the pressure and, and the, the, the situation that we're all looking at right now of having an entire winter of dealing with the pandemic, um, gets them moving a little faster than they've been moving the past three months. Yeah. 
Good, good point. Here's the next one. Um, thank you. What are, um, what are the prospects for expanding Medicare by lowering the Medicare age or creating the buy-in? We talked about that a little bit, but what are the chances that the government's going to gain the ability to negotiate prescription rates also? Because that's in the news. Oh, you know, <laughs> look, uh, so Annette, so Pete, uh, Samantha, Annette, and I work for or volunteer for lobbying associations that have PACs that are 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 meaningful in DC to where our voices are certainly heard. But when I compare it to PHRMA, uh, it's we're not even close. And and if there's one thing that would make me skeptical as to the likelihood that you're going to see uh, Medicare uh, being a, you're going to see a, a heightened level of negotiation power given to the government for prescription drug price pricing. I, I just think about the lobbyists that will descend on DC to kill that as, a, as an idea. And I'm a little bit more pessimistic that you're, that we're likely to see that at least in the near term future. I, uh, I, I don't know how much truth there is, but, but, we're off, but I often hear that there, for every lobbyist, there are 20 in the pharmaceutical industry. So um, they have quite a bit of po- power. I think you're right. Um, you, okay. you almost wonder the irony of, you know, they've been much maligned over, you know, this uh, for the yeah. past number of years. And now they're going to be the savior, so to speak, with bringing these vaccines forth and hopefully uh, getting us all out of the uh, dire s- situation that we're in. So you sort of wonder yeah, and, how that, that changes things. And, and Pete, you know, yeah. and that, we've all, we've all been in meetings down in DC where as soon as price fixing comes up or any form of price fixing, most yeah. regulators try to g- kind of go backward. And I understand that. I mean, think about what, uh, if you're on the, if you're listening to this presentation and you think about your business and the government told you you could only charge X for what you sell, you probably have a negative reaction. Yeah. I am more optimistic in, in things like what happens when Amazon opens up its prescription drug exchange and starts negotiating access to the Amazon prescription drug exchange with 200 million Amazon prime members as, as holding my breath, waiting for DC to implement uh, an aggressive pricing structure for prescription drugs. I, yeah. I'm just not holding my breath yeah. for that. That's, that's awesome though. Yeah, you're right. I think it's that innovation and that challenge of the status quo, which is what dr- always drives us forward. So that's good. Um, another one. Um, do you know how popular telehealth has become due to COVID? I'd say very. Um, I think it would be interesting for everybody on this uh, call and, how either any of us individually and for our families, but but uh, for for our employee populations that have seen an uptick significantly uh, in the use of telehealth and and much more broadly than what it what it was originally intended to be. Um, so I think that trend is going to be here to stay and change the landscape of how healthcare is delivered. And I, I had an interesting uh, stat that I just happened to to, to jot down here. Um, on my desk that that, uh, one of the major health insurance carriers on this topic said that so far, year to date, they've had 20 million visits, telehealth visits in 2020 versus 1 million visits in all of 2019. So just simply that as a sheer you know, data point for for, uh, how much traction this is getting. It's it's, uh, no doubt that it's, it's here to stay. I'm sure it'll go oh, yeah. up too with, you know, winter coming. Right. That is going to 
Agreed. Well, and I think yeah. that's, yeah, and I think that's one place we'll also see maybe some um, permanent legislation or policymaking because telehealth was pro- prohibited for Medicare, people on Medicare. Medicare wouldn't pay for telehealth prior to COVID. So hopefully that, because I don't know about you, but um, when my mom tells me she had a telehealth visit, it makes me feel a lot better, <laughs> you know, that she's not having to go right. out and, and you know. Uh, yeah, and also, you know, adjust to the telehealth for HSA eligibility. I think that goes until the end right. of 2021, but perhaps they just expand it out and say, yeah, you can have telehealth and it won't yeah. impact your HSA eligibility. Yeah, great point. Yeah. Well, well, most of our clients who are on the call today, I mean, they know what are the hardest things to, con- what are the hardest uh, things to control when you're administering a health plan and trying to keep a healthy workforce? One is, one is trying to influence healthy decisions on a daily basis, um, giving, giving people incentives to engage a healthy diet, to exercise, to uh, take care of themselves and their family and giving them space to do that, um, to, to, to give them the best chance of avoiding stress-related or, or lifestyle-related health conditions. That's really hard to accomplish and we're getting better at it, but we still have a long way to go. Next is how do you get employees to visit a primary care physician when they feel all right? right? How do you get individuals to, to engage the healthcare system to get ahead of what could be an underlying condition that hasn't manifested yet? And, you know, with, if an employee only has X amount of PTO days, what's the likelihood that they're going to use a PTO day to go see to go, go to an office visit and see a physician. What I love about the frontier of telehealth is that it pre- presents a, a, an enormous opportunity to remove substantial barriers between an employee population and accessing a primary care physician. And, and we're just at the beginning stages. I wouldn't say that telehealth supplants a primary care in-person physician, but I could easily envision it going that direction. And I think a lot of investors in, say, Silicon Valley see feel the same way. So I'm very excited about what this could turn into as a tool to get employees and their families on a path to health in a much easier fashion than what we currently have in a lot of situations yeah. today. Absolutely. I, I think it just works for so many. Um, okay, last one uh, in the interest of time. So how secure is the employer-based model for providing health care under a Biden presidency? So what do we think about what is that? Is the employer offering this model of employer uh, something that will continue. What are you thinking, Ed? What do you? What's your thoughts there? Um, I think that in the short term, I think that it's too hard of an animal to change. Um, a hundred over 170 million people get their health care that way. That would be a lot of people to provide a subsidy to because they're being subsidized right now by the employer, right? So just from a pure economic standpoint. Uh, there's, I, I don't know how you replace that, right? You can't like, again, it's not a light switch. So I think they count on the employer-based model to take care of this whole big population. So the government only focuses on entitlement plans, which would be Medicare, and then helping the states with Medicaid, which are done at, the, at that level. And then they've got the small 10% or so or less of people that they subsidize in the individual market. But the bulk is all in this employer market. So I I think um, it would be it would be odd to think that that you know we're that they would just turn that off. Now, eventually, is that a path of somewhere they would go? We can see that in some of the um, you know uh, single payer type uh, things being um, 
introduced that have been introduced that have a number of co-sponsors on them. Um, but I think that's far away. I don't know. What do you yeah, guys think? I'd, I'd agree. I mean, I think that the employer-based model has proven to, to be uh, innovative. It's um, a way in which, uh, you know, there, there's, there's certain aspects that could be changed about um, sort of the continuity of care when people leave employment yeah. and, and then what happens. And so, you know, I think there's things that you could fix as opposed to uh, the noise level that that's always maybe going to get louder um, in the next over the next four years about a single payer system. We certainly heard through the the primaries and, and uh, right through the election cycle. So I think that's an area that that uh, the employer base, it's really about a, a healthy private and public partnership to drive towards an end game that's going to you know, help us uh, control costs and, and make sure that, that we have universal coverage. Awesome. Well, thank you all. We're um, at our time. So thank you, Samantha, Pete, and Scott, and thank you all for attending today. As you need it, One Digital Strategic Workforce Consultants are here with expert guidance and support to help you navigate through the next few months. Don't hesitate to reach out and learn more. Once again, I'd like to remind everyone on today's call that you can view this employer advisory session and past sessions on our website. Stay safe, healthy, and stay connected with your family and friends and coworkers, and we'll see you next time. Take care. Bye-bye.